Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by Mies, the revolutionary new interactive recipe tool for professional chefs and cooks. Designers use Figma, photographers use Photoshop. Now, finally, chefs have the right tool for recipe development, management, training, and evolution with Mies. Like Mise en Place, the term that inspired its name, Mies helps chefs and cooks be organized, ready, and efficient, save time and money, eliminate mistakes and redundancies, and guarantee consistency, whether in one restaurant or across a multi-unit company. Visit GetMies, that's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash Andrew to learn more and sign up for a free trial membership. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. I was always aware that I could be better, that I could be more thoughtful, get more insight into myself. And it was a good thing for me. And it made such a a difference in my life. It changed my perspective so much that it became part of our culture. We have a very strong culture. That is the voice of Richard Melman, founder of Let Us Entertain You, who joins us today with company president R.J. Melman and executive partner Jared Melman. I mean, there is some supply issues, weird things that you don't think about, like getting an iPad. I think it's a three-week, four-week wait right now. We use them for millions of things, our reservation system and ordering, those kind of weird things, but nothing that has really hindered us. And that is Vicki Freeman of the Bowery Group, who just opened their newest restaurant, Chouquette, in New York City. They are our guests today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman, and I am joined today for the introduction by my friend Chandra Ram. Chandra, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? I'm good. People, you've been on the show a few times. People may remember you. Uh, you we did a feature interview a couple years a couple ago. Years ago, you and... came on on the sad occasion of uh, the passing of Floyd Cardoz last year. Yeah, we're friends. I, you, you and your husband Jay have actually put me up this week. I'm back in Chicago. At the official Midwestern headquarters of Andrew Talks to Chefs. <laughs> can I throw that at you? You can throw that at me. I, I thought, you know, it might be nice to have you join me, first of all, you know, so people could hear your voice again. Uh, but also, you know, we have a Chicago, it's not just a Chicago legend, an industry legend, Richard Melman, 
uh, along with his sons, RJ and Jared, who are now integral parts of that company, let us entertain you. When we get to the intro, I want to just get some comments from you on that company. They cast a huge shadow here. Absolutely. But I also just thought it'd be fun to have you come on. You have seen me in a state of disarray this week. No, no. Actually, I've seen you getting up, you know, before dawn to get interviews done. And I've seen you racing around and then suddenly like dropping for 20 minutes, taking a nap, bounding out and going off to another interview. So. Oh, that makes it sound better than it feels you're making me feel like a little bit of a slug right now but <laughs> people may remember i was in town a, c a couple of weeks ago I, I did a very kind of uh scattered introduction to the show I, I wasn't able to print a script as i sit here before you today i have handwritten notes and my open laptop because i'm cribbing from both places um <laughs> But why don't you tell people what you're up to? People, you, until very recently, were the editor of Plate Magazine. You just recently left that role. I left that role um, after, yeah, more than 15 years of editing the magazine. And just, I think, like a lot of people, the last year and a half have made me think, like, okay, what am I doing in my life? And... Um, and I had for a couple of years thought at some point soon I want to just try something new and try something a little different. So I'm doing some freelancing right now and, um, you know, hosting internationally known podcast hosts. So. <laughs> Again, you make it sound better than it feels. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, I think it's, it's, it's nice to, it, it was a huge risk for me to say, okay, I'm going to walk away from this thing that's gone very well for me for a long time, but it also feels, it feels good. I'm not sure what's up next, but i um, doing a lot of freelancing and uh, gonna knuckle down the next few weeks and uh, return to a couple of book proposals that I've been- That's great. That have been loitering in my, in my draft. Well, paper. as you know, I wanna read those books. Well, before we get to it, this is kind of an, an owner-oriented show. Uh, in the lineup, we have Vicki Freeman, who has the Bowery Group in New York City with her husband, Mark Meyer. Uh, and then, of course, we have the Melmans. Uh, before we get to all that, just how how's Chicago feeling to you these days? Masks are back on in a lot of restaurants. Masks uh, are back on. I've talked to a couple of chefs who said that, uh, you know, hey, we've got small restaurants and we've wanted to mandate vaccines in our restaurants, um, you know, for customers. All our staff members are vaccinated. And now at least we can do that. So I think right now the feeling is kind of classically Chicago, like a little bit like, hey, this is happening, but screw you, we're gonna push through and we're going to keep going as long as we can. Um, there are still openings taking place. Um, Haleo, Jose Andres' restaurant just opened uh, very recently. Esme is opening next week. Um, People are pushing through and optimistic, and we kind of have to be because, um, you know, come back in February and we'll see how those outdoor dining huts feel. But um, we're we're pushing through. Chicago has a has a, a good vaccination rate, so the people here are responding. This episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs is sponsored in part by Brad Metzger Restaurant Solutions, also known as BMRS. Founded by industry veteran Brad Metzger, whose first kitchen job was under Wolfgang Puck at the original Spago and based in Southern California, BMRS Hospitality Recruitment matches top-level hospitality professionals with some of the best jobs in the industry, both across 
the United States and internationally. If you are looking for the next step in your career, from conventional positions like executive chef, pastry chef, and sous chef, to dining room positions like general manager, director of operations, or manager, to outside-the-box directions like R&D and private chefing, BMRS should be the first stop on your quest. There is never a cost to you, the candidate, and BMRS adheres to the strictest confidentiality standards. So reach out and begin a conversation with them today, whether to pursue a specific current listing or just to be sure you're on their radar so they can reach out to you when your dream position crosses their desk. As Brad himself likes to say, it never hurts to see what else is out there. BMRS has created a special email for our listeners. Send a resume to ATC at restaurant-solutions.com or call 310-245-5108 and tell them Andrew suggested you call. Learn more at restaurant-solutions.com and keep an eye out for some marquee listings on BMRS's Instagram feed at BMRS Food Jobs. Okay, so in the lineup, our weekly news and commentary segment, which as always is brought to you by Mies, we have Vicki Freeman. Vicki Freeman is with her husband, Chef Mark Meyer, the owner and operator of the Bowery Group, which is a collection of restaurants in New York that I really love. They have Cookshop, Vicks, Rosie's, Shuka, and then they just opened a new restaurant called Shuket which Vicky will explain the difference between Shuka and Shuket. Uh, she'll also explain what to call it. I wasn't sure if you call it a spinoff. I didn't know what you call that in, a, in the restaurant world. Uh, but I just thought it would be a good time. And I also thought also since we had the Melmans on the show today, I thought it'd be a good day to kind of do like an owner show. Does that make sense? Why not? And also, I think that owners have been sort of, especially at the front lines in the last year and a half. I mean, this has been all about making business decisions to keep the restaurant going yeah so, so Vicky I asked Vicky to join I should say also Vicky and Mark are very dear friends and might have known them a long time uh, but I asked Vicky to come on I just thought it was a good time to kind of you know get an owner of kind of a, a you know a small slash mid-sized re- restaurant group uh, to just kind of come on and both talk about their new restaurant and what it was like opening it and then just kind of do a general check-in as I think is becoming useful again we were doing our special reports last year which were day-to-day Uh, But I think probably this new segment, you know, more and more as we roll along may just be checking in with people because things are changing so quickly. Uh, This interview was recorded about a week ago. I think it's all still very pertinent and timely. None of it has expired. And with that, I'm going to get you to it. Here's my conversation with Vicki Freeman. Vicki, thank you very much for joining us. I guess I'll just start. It feels like such a weird time right now. I feel like there's a little bit of uncertainty in the air. I mean, New York still feels pretty good, but I I, get, I don't usually do this, but let me just start with a very broad question. How are you? Well, thanks for that. I would say overall good. You know, these days, good comes with all sorts of caveats. I mean, there's so much going on. And yes, is it extra strange because we're going in a direction that I was hoping we weren't going to go in. So that adds to some of the strangeness of it. Well, that aside, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is you all have opened a new restaurant uh, just in the last few weeks. It is, do we call it a spinoff? What's the restaurant term? Is it a sister restaurant to Shuka? We're calling it a sister restaurant because it is the same chef. It is also 
Middle Eastern, but it is not the same. So why don't you tell people about it? Why don't you include the fun details like where it is? And then why don't you tell us what the concept is and how it varies from the original Shuka, what you're doing at Shuket? It's called Shuket. It's on 24th Street and 9th Avenue in Chelsea. And we've now been open for three weeks. One of the big differences is that we have an entire bread program that we're doing at Shukat that we didn't have the facility to do at Shuka. So our chef and partner is Aisha Nurjaya, who's incredible. And she's getting to do a lot of really great breads, which we couldn't do before. Shuka, although it's got a, a wide variety of all sorts of things, there is a big emphasis on kebabs. This is probably not going to help anyone, (laughs) but I always say Shuka is a night in Morocco, whereas to me, Shuket feels like Morocco, a night in New York. They both have very different feelings. Both are amazing, but there's definitely a different feelings. And one of the huge things is the kitchen at Shuka is downstairs and half of the restaurant at Shuket, the kitchen is kitchen and it's upstairs. So you're watching people cook, you're getting the aroma, you're getting the smoke, you're getting all of it. I love all that. I mean, I have not been yet, as as you know, because you very, in a friendly way, chided me recently when we were texting. Aisha, your chef, I, I will link to on the episode page for this show, the interview that I did with her a couple of years ago at Shuka. I mean, what, one of the things I always found interesting about her approach, maybe more than I want to say maybe more than any chef I know, although I'm sure she's not unique in this, but, you know, in her travels around the world where she's gone to different countries, one of the things that really struck me, and I think it really makes the restaurant, or at least the original restaurant makes sense uh, after I learned this about her, you know, a lot of people go on trips around the world, especially people in the industry, they come back and the kind of, uh, all they tell you about is the restaurants they went to, you know, um, she would make a point of going into people's homes uh, and seeing how they cooked in their homes in different countries. And I think that really says a lot about what she does in the restaurants and the and how her food comes off. I mean, it really does come off. It's freaking delicious, but it's not show offy and, you know, and kind of, you know, quote unquote, chefy way. I mean, she obviously has all that training and all that expertise, but it rings very authentic and a little, I don't know, a little less manipulated than that. Does that make sense? Do you agree with that? Yeah, it completely does. Someone said a couple nights ago after they ate there that her food has the confidence of someone that doesn't have to add unnecessary thing, that there was a confidence in that. She is very serious about cooking in people's homes, cooking with people who have cooked, you know, with their families for generations. And I think that her food feels that. Her food's not in her head. Her food is in her heart. And I think that shows up on the plate because she doesn't overthink it. She really comes up with, we just put kibbe on the menu at Shukat and it's kibbe that she had in someone's house, you know, that someone's mother aunt, grandmother made. And just so people know, I don't do pre-interviews on this show. So this little tandem thing we just had about the home cooking element of the food, that was not pre-arranged. That was a spontaneous exchange we just had. You know, obviously this is such a crazy time just to contextualize it. We, you know, I live just north of New York City. You obviously live and operate your restaurants in New York City. You know, as we're having this conversation, the COVID numbers here have gone up a little. There's still numbers that a lot of 
places would kill for, you know, like the seven day average is in the low, just over 2%, all things considered, that's still not bad, although the rate of increase is really bad. What have been the challenges of getting a restaurant open at a time where there's such uncertainty? You know, there are still restaurants that are only taking reservations like on the on their reservation software. There's still restaurants that are only booking tables two weeks in advance because they're not sure what the landscape's going to be uh, in a couple of weeks. What what's What's been the challenge of just opening a restaurant within the last month? I have to say there's so many challenges. Yes, the uncertainty of everything is definitely in there. The real thought behind Shuket was to sort of recreate some of the feeling we had in eating in Tel Aviv because Aisha and I went to Tel Aviv together for a bit of a long trip. And really, you know, there was a couple of places, even at Middle Eastern restaurants in London, and there was this feeling of connection, community. You're all sitting next to each other and you're really close to the kitchen and all of that, which is really wonderful unless you have a pandemic, and then not so amazing. So we actually had to wait until there was, to us, we felt like we couldn't do it safely with six feet of distancing, and there's not enough plastic in the world that we could figure out how to wrap everybody in. So we waited until there was a vaccine, and the vaccine was wildly distributed. The challenge right now is that people have just been so excited to eat out and so excited about coming to someplace new. And the energy has really been infectious. So I'm hoping that that doesn't change with what's going on right now. If I'm understanding you right, so you all made the decision that in order to honor the sort of the concept, the spirit of what you were trying to do, you you opted to wait until you could do it in the way you wanted to. And I mean, it seems to me like that strategically, some people might think that seems like a, you know, like so many people were eager just to be open, right? But it would seem to me that, you know, a new restaurant, you don't, people don't have the benefit of having been there before you open. So you had to create the right first impression, right? Like you didn't want to open, I would imagine you didn't want to open a place, have people come in with no frame of reference, having experienced it the way it was meant to be, and, and uh, have that be their first experience. Is that Was that part of the decision-making process? That's exactly what it was. You know, we even had the just hell talks about should we even do this at all, you know, and just because it seemed impossible for what we wanted to open up and these times. So, you know, waiting, I now think, you know how everything happens at the right time, whether we ever learn that or not, is impossible. But I do feel like, I mean, we are two years late in opening. And yet I do feel like this is the greatest time to open because of how excited people are and how excited they are for something new. And yes, this place, I have to say, Shuket is one of the most special projects I've done. You know, it was really a huge collaboration between me and Aisha. And it's rare in life where you have a vision, both sides, and the vision actually came out the way that we wanted it to, which has been really exciting. And it's, Definitely, I have to say, in all of this time and, you know, worrying about everybody's safety and all this, it brought some definite joy and fun into it because it opened and we just fell in love immediately. Oh, that's great. And I should say, I ran into your your husband and your business partner, Mark, maybe two weeks ago. Uh, I don't know, even know if he told you, but I ran into him over on Greenwich Avenue. And, you know, I said, you know, on your Instagram, that restaurant looks like a party. And he said, that's what it feels like. It does. There's a lot of joy in it. I mean, I think the people that work there are incredible. I think the food's incredible. 
and one of our managers is doing the music and he's kicking some ass. Can we say ass on this? But he's the music is beautiful and it's great, you know, and it definitely it definitely has spirit. The lineup is brought to you by Mies. Here is one chef's thoughts on how this revolutionary recipe tool can help your business. Hi, this is Chef Franklin Becker. Mies is this fantastic tool in the kitchen that we use, especially at Manhattanville Market, but actually we use it at all our operations at this point. It's a recipe development tool that allows you to do your costing and your prep all in one. It's just fantastic because if I don't have an ingredient or if I have a little bit of an ingredient, I can scale my recipes in real time down to meet whatever that ingredient is. I'll know the cost. I'll know all the breakdown. It's easy for my workers to get to it. It's just a fantastic fantastic tool. And, you know, my friend Josh Sharkey, who created it, spent a lot of years in the kitchen. It was with Gray Coons for a long time. He knew what we needed in the industry. He knew what a recipe development tool required. And he put it all in one nice, awesome package. If I were you, I'd go to getmes.com slash Andrew. I would go for that if I were you. Vicki, you guys have a handful of restaurants in the city. What are the pros and cons of that right now. And there's a very well-reported staffing crisis going on in the industry. I don't know if it's reached a crisis level, but I know there's even been some supply chain issues I've been hearing about in the last few weeks. Like I've heard, I actually, I've heard from a few people that there's a shortage of shipping containers right now in the, in the world. What are the pros and cons of having multiple restaurants at a time like this? Like, you know, the pros in terms of how maybe you can you know, leverage resources across all of them and the cons being that you need to keep, you know, X number of places, you know, fully staffed and operational. Like what what are the things that uh, might not be apparent or obvious to a civilian like me uh, that are on the pros and cons column right now? Well, I'll start with the cons (laughs) so we can end positively. Um, The cons are staffing, 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 which you hear all over. I mean, right now, Shuket can only be open four nights a week. We're open Wednesday through Saturday, and we're only using a quarter of the outside capacity that we have, all and only because of staffing. We just don't have the staff to do more. Is that mainly a kitchen or dining room issue, or is it both? It's all over the place. It's kitchen. It's. I mean, this is the first time I can ever remember in all of my life of doing this where servers like we could not get enough servers, you know, and that's been really difficult and it's everywhere. So the pros of having many different places are you can pull some staff, but you're hurting them because they're not in a great place either. So, you know, for instance, we had to pull two servers from cook shop to get Shuket open. Um, and we felt it was important to open for many, many reasons. But one of them was also because To hire, I wanted people to see what it was because a place that was just not open with brown paper on the wall, you know, just didn't have the energy or what it was. So I wanted to get it open for many reasons. But because we had to take two servers from Cookshop, we had to take away an entire station from Cookshop of, you know, entire sitting area because we didn't have enough servers to make up for the people that we were taking. So I would say that that is one of the cons you know there is also a bit of a con with so much with opening a new place and with staffing issues and all that i you know sometimes i feel like are we 
giving enough attention to our GMs? Are we giving enough attention to our chefs? Are we, you know, in all the restaurants, are they all getting what they need from us as partners? You know, the other, I will now say those are mostly, I mean, there is some um, supply issues, you know, is weird things that you don't think about, like getting an iPad, you know, it's a, I think it's a three week, four week wait right now, you know, when we, we use them for millions of things, our reservation system and ordering and, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of things, you know, I mean, there's those kind of weird things, but nothing that has really hindered us, you know, this is my biggest, scariest thing, because I am at Rosie's at the moment, is we're having a problem getting the tequila we like to use for our margaritas. That's a big thing. Well, it's huge. I mean, part of it is because we're extremely serious about what we use. Those margaritas have been tested and tested and tested. And so it's really important to us. Tim Harris, who, who's our beverage director, is working on it. But I was like, no, 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 no. We cannot have that. <laughs> so those are some of the cons. I will say this as I'm sitting here. You know, everybody's asked me all the reasons. I'm not going to go into all the staffing reasons unless you want me to why I think. Well, we have sat around for hours and hours trying to figure it out. But I do feel a bit of a lightening up on it. So I do feel like for some reason, we are starting to get some really great people and more people. And that's pretty exciting. So I feel some lightening of that issue happening. I don't know if it's just this week and next week will be different, but right now it feels like there is, it's going in a positive direction. Are these people who are returning to the fold after some time away or are these new hires? Yep. Yep. No, they all seem to be returning, returning, you know, much, you know, I'm a born and bred New Yorker. So a super happiness to me is how many people seem to be moving back. You know, a lot of the people who are coming to us are moving either back and strangely enough, I don't know if it's, a coincidence or what, but we're getting a lot of people moving to New York, like from other places, not moving back, but actually moving to New York City. And there's like, we came to visit, we just feel such an energy in New York. We just, I mean, really some nice, positive stuff on that, which has been exciting. I know you wanted to end with the with the pros. So before we end with the, the positives, as you know, we did a whole uh, news segment on it last week with the uh, with Patricia and Ed from Dame Restaurant um, about the whole uh, vaccine thing. But, you know, as people have probably seen, because it was major, now, I actually learned it from a friend of mine in L.A. when the news broke yesterday. Um, uh, you know, the mayor of New York City is there's now going to be a mandate vaccination required for a lot of indoor activities, restaurants, gymnasiums, theaters. However you want to answer, Vicki, I don't want to get personal and ask your own philosophy unless you want to share it. Uh, but at, at a minimum, I would like to know as an operator, how are you feeling about that? Do you are you are you getting most are you hearing mostly I'm not asking you scientifically, it's all anecdotal, but are you getting mostly positive responses to that news from your customers? Customers, from people in your, you know, your employees, what's kind of, you know, just from where you sit, from your immediate surroundings, how's that news being received and how are you feeling about being required to implement it? I actually feel really good about it because this is the direction we want to go. And for us, it's so much easier when it's a mandate, then we have to make the decision and have people maybe get upset with us and say, you know, we have rights, we should be able to do this. You know what I mean? It's it's actually, people thought I was gonna be upset. I was actually relieved because it's what we wanna do anyway. And this way, it doesn't necessarily just fall on us. So 
I feel pretty good about it. I, it's funny because there's been such a mixed reaction, like even with some of our managers, like we hate being told what to do and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, hey, I understand that. You know what I mean? Because it's, you know, it's always this and things are always changing. And now we have to do this. Now we have to do that. And I said, OK, but do you agree? And everybody I've talked to said yes. You know, especially, you know, to be vaccinated, to sit inside, I think is the right way to go. For the first time ever, it seems to me, they've given us a little bit of breathing room to figure it out, you know, and I appreciate that because I can't tell you how many things would be like, it'd be Wednesday and we're starting this tomorrow. We're starting it Friday. You know, you're like, okay, okay, we'll get it together by then, you know? So it's, I, I'm appreciative of a little bit of time to figure this out. You know, I think that we were already working on it. So I know I'm not think we were already working on it. So I'm glad about that. But I think it's good. And then what are the pros? You you know, having a handful of restaurants right now, you mentioned the challenges. Uh, uh, you, you laid that out very clearly. What are the what's the plus side of that right now? Having a flotilla of ships to keep afloat instead of just having one boat to keep afloat. And that's a very good way of putting it because it does sometimes feel like we're trying to keep it afloat or we're juggling and not dropping a ball. But I do think that the pros way outweigh it. And one of the biggest pros are just my partners, you know, they are incredible. And without them, I'd be sunk. And we now have um, Aisha, who's a chef partner. There's me, my husband, there's Anna Marie McCullough, who is the front of the house director of operations and Chris, who does more back of the house. And without a bunch of restaurants, we couldn't have this many people. You know, there just isn't enough. So with this many restaurants, we can have this many partners, which is unbelievable, but there's also such an incredible support system and sense of community. You know, all of our GMs are very close friends, sometimes annoyingly so when I know they're bitching about us behind the scenes, um, but they're incredible group and they all have been with us from before, except for Shuket, because our GM there is new. Um, well, not new, but since we opened Shuket, but they are, always talking they're always helping each other out you know with something if something happens and they need something they'll send someone over from their restaurant you know if there is a supply issue we can get it from another restaurant but more than anything and all even the logistics it's the sense of support and the sense of community like that you're not in it alone that it's not just you and mark against the world right and it's not just that but they're not in it alone you know what I mean? Like they have support instead of demanding all the support from us, they get it from each other as well. You know, and I know this sounds very flowery and whatever, but I really mean it. Like they are, like I said, they've all been with us through all this before this, you know, they all, all of them were with us before this, you know, before the pandemic. So we already knew each other and had, a, you know, a connection with each other before and they have just had incredible attitudes, fortitude, you know, all of it to get through this with us. But having that huge support system for us and for each other is everything. I appreciate it before. I appreciate it much more now. Nobody's ever asked me that question. It's a good one. I feel really seen. <laughs> it's great talking to you because you don't ask me what my favorite kitchen tool is or what my favorite <laughs> ingredient is to work with. You're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs, an independent podcast. We'll be right back. This was very enjoyable. Thank yeah, you. that was a pleasure. We'll see you again. God, I hope so. Go to
Our thanks again to Vicki Freeman for calling into the show and sharing all those thoughts and also talking about Chouquette, which I look forward to visiting in the very near future. So every week in this space, as you know, we feature some of the newest and most appealing job listings from one of our sponsors, Brad Metzger Restaurant Solutions, or BMRS. So the three jobs that uh, Brad asked me to tell you all about this week, they all sound very interesting. Here's a brand new one, a new chef-driven concept in Los Angeles that is inspired by the health benefits of cannabis is structuring their opening team. They already have a notable executive chef in place, and they are seeking a chef de cuisine in the eighty dollars to $85,000 a year range, a general manager in the $100,000 a year range, and an assistant general manager in the eighty dollars to $85,000 a year range. These jobs all have fantastic benefits, and as you would expect maybe from a company that has its origin story that I just described. They have a holistic approach to taking care of all of their employees, both salaried and hourly. They are also seeking a candidate for a Michelin-starred group that is looking for an executive sous chef for their highly successful Las Vegas location. This is a fantastic opportunity for an experienced sous chef looking for the next step in their career, and that job comes in in the 75 to 85 thousand dollar a year range and last but not least there is a growing san diego hospitality group with upscale concepts that is seeking a top tier corporate chef to lead culinary operations they're looking for experienced operators and this job pays in the mid to high six figures again i would urge you to bookmark and keep an eye on the bmrs website restaurant-solutions.com to stay abreast of up-to-the-minute job listings, and whether to pursue a specific job or just to establish an ongoing dialogue for when your dream job crosses their desk, Brad and the BMRS team would love to hear from you and learn about what you are looking for. Please be in touch with them at their dedicated Andrew Talks to Chefs email address, atc at restaurant-solutions.com, or call them at 310-245-5108. Whomever you reach out to and however you do it, please be sure to tell them that Andrew sent you. So for our feature interview today, this is something I was really excited about. I was approached months ago about possibly having uh, the Melman family on the show. Richard Melman and his late partner, Jerry Orzov, in 1971 with their first restaurant, R.J. Grunts, founded a company called Let Us Entertain You. It's an enormously successful company. Uh, On the show today, we have Rich, along with his son, RJ, who is the president of the company, and Jared, another son who is an executive partner with the company. Uh, I sat down with them a few weeks ago. I waited. I knew I'd be coming to Chicago to work on this book that I've been here researching. So I waited until I was going to be here instead of doing a, you know, like a phoner, especially given that it was a handful of people. We met at one of their restaurants. Chandra, I'm going to ask for your thoughts in a second, but I I think anyone listening to this show must have heard of Let Us Entertain You. Today, this company owns, manages, and licenses more than 130 establishments. You can go look at all of them on their website, which I'll, of course, link to. I'm not going to try to list all of them, but suffice it to say, it ranges from fast, casual restaurants like Emberger to fine dining restaurants to Michelin-starred restaurants, everything in between, all types of cuisines, all types of service styles. The first time I ever heard of this company, maybe this is a good place to start, was Ed DeBevix. That was a, a concept. Oh, wow. 
I remember it was kind of a, like a 50s, you know, you'd walk in and they'd say like, hey, daddy-o, and this kind of thing. That was the first time I'd ever heard of them, but they were very much known for concepts initially. But now, like I said, it's, it's just branched into every conceivable type of restaurant. Chandra, as someone who's here in Chicago who covers the industry, can you just say a few words about Let Us Entertain You? Sure. I think that, uh, you know, when people talk about the most influential chefs and restaurateurs in Chicago, I, th I think Rich Melman is sometimes almost criminally underrepresented in those conversations. You'll hear chefs talking about, you know, Charlie Trotter and Jean Bancher and Paul Kahn. And a lot of what they were doing was built on the shoulders of what Let Us Entertain You enabled. You know, I moved to Chicago in the early 90s, and the city was just kind of, downtown was just sort of swarming with all of these restaurants, and they were hitting a spot that we forget was, un, was largely unavailable before that, and it was that mid-level restaurant. Um, there was still this perception that restaurant dining was either super, super casual, um, it, was, it meant going to chain restaurants, or it meant going to an expensive restaurant. And this was a time when you dined out at an expensive restaurant, it, you, you dressed up, it was, going to be, it was going to be pricey, and that was the only way you got chef-driven food. And not all of the lettuce restaurants are chef-driven, for sure. As you say, it's a lot of concepts. But these were independent restaurant feeling spaces that had good food and that were carving out like a, a new space in the industry. And it was astounding to move to Chicago and see Scoozy, which would see, you know, would have like 300 covers on a Tuesday night or something, but also had a wood burning pizza oven which mid-90s was, you know, something pretty new and pretty exciting. Or, you know, to know that Melman had partnered with Oprah Winfrey, um, who I'm just going to say was the Beyonce at the time, but that you could go to her restaurant and have this food that she really loved and enjoyed. And it was, it was almost boosterism for Chicago, um, as well as part of something, you know, something that was creating this very fun dining scene. And, you know, he's also partnered with chefs like Rick Tremonto, like Jean Joho. Um, you know, he's worked, there are wonderful chefs who've come out of Let Us Entertain You. Tim Cushman has, and his wife Nancy from Oya in Boston and New York. Um, they're Lettuce alums. So uh, he really made a mark on the industry, not just in Chicago, but around the country. Thank you for all that. That's better than I ever could have done. That's better than, I mean, just, you know, you doing what you do, doing it here, doing it as well as you do. Thank you so much for that context. I think it was invaluable uh, for people. Uh, I have to say, there's a lot of stuff that struck me when I sat down with these guys. I had, I had seen Rich speak at the Welcome Conference a few years ago. Uh, we shook hands, actually, the next morning. I mean, literally shook hands. He was saying hello to someone I was having breakfast with, and, and that was the, my entire relationship with him before mm -hmm. we had the sit-down uh, when I was here a couple of weeks back. Uh, first of all, you know, people have talked this way about him forever. He's, he come, you know, for someone as just, like, incredibly almost impossible to describe success that he has had he's he he's the most modest guy he's the, a soft-spoken guy he's a very 
uh, give and take conversationalist. Uh, and, you know, his, his two sons, RJ and Jared, are now, you know, they have these huge roles in the company, as I said, president and executive partner. Uh, the, you'll, you all will hear this right away. The dynamic of the family is so relaxed. It's so comfortable. It's, it's uh, as I say, at one point in this conversation, they're not kind of looking out of the side of their eye to make sure that, you know, the old man's okay with what they're saying. It's, it's a very cohesive unit. Uh, it was very striking to me uh, on many, many levels. And also, uh, I didn't know what where this interview would go, but Rich especially, although this is true of the three of them, let me take it to very personal places. He's always been a very progressive guy. I, I think more than people might expect from, like you said, a lot of people's first recognition or awareness of the company, you know, came about from, there was, he wasn't front and center. Right. It was these concepts. He was never kind of a publicity hog. Not at all. And, yeah. you know, I don't know. I I'm guessing this is before you and I were friends. But were you at the the Beard Awards the year he won Outstanding Restaurateur and wasn't there? No. <laughs> and, you know, I think probably everyone else up for consideration for that award was, you know, sitting, you know, half crouched in their seats, ready to jump up. And he wasn't there. Be, and it wasn't a snub. It wasn't some sort of statement. It was just, no, I'm I'm at home with my wife, and I was at the restaurants today, and it just wasn't something he thought about. But if uh, I'm not sure if the his speech that he gave to the uh, the at the award ceremony the following year is still available on the Beard website, uh, but um, it's pretty fantastic. He's an inspiring guy. He's had this culture of taking care of employees even before people were having that conversation publicly. And he's, you know, he's so down to earth and so are his kids. I know, I know his kids, like you talked about Ed DeBevick, like they used to work there. Oh yeah. Yeah. We get into all this in the interview. We get into what it's like growing up the son of a restaurateur, which I always thought would be like the coolest thing, having observed friends of mine with kids, you know, running around their restaurants and all this kind of thing. We get into all that. We get into, like I said, everybody's backstory. Uh, I, I listen, I don't know what people think when they hear me describing people who run this like behemoth of a company, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if they are disbelieving of the way I'm presenting it, but listen and judge for yourself. I am telling you, I was just knocked out by the th these three guys. I really was. I should also say Jared and RJ's sister, Molly, was originally supposed to be here. We do talk about her a little bit in the conversation. She was able to grab an opportunity to go to Paris. Uh, so, Which... I don't blame her. Do it. Yes. <laughs> so she ended up not being present for the interview. Uh, I, I say this also in the conversation. I think that was very much the right call. Uh, our feature interview, as always, is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. In this case, an owner does too. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs, the perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions. Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sampellegrino.com. And with that, let me get you to it. Here is my interview with Rich, RJ, and Jared Melman.
Thank you all for being here. Thank you for inviting me to be here. Rich, I'd love to start with you, please. No surprise. I've been reading up on you. A lot of it I already knew. There's a lot I didn't know, which I want to ask you about. Some of it was very surprising to me. I wanted to ask you this question as a beginning point to where you are now. Do you remember your very first restaurant experience? I'm not positive if it was the first restaurant experience I had, but it was one of the first. It was at a place called Porky's, and it was on Armitage <laughs> Avenue in Logan Square. I was in grade school. What kind of place was it, and what, what do you remember? I remember that I liked their cheeseburgers. And the funny thing that I didn't realize till I was in about seventh grade or eighth, eighth grade, across from Porky's, was a kosher butcher shop. And when you were in Porky's and they had a neon pig in the window, it shone into the kosher butcher shop. And I, I, I always thought it was very funny. I got a kick out of it. Well, that but, makes, given a lot of the restaurants you have done, this actually makes <laughs> sense as a formative early memory. You know? Right. Yeah. 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 Including the name. <laughs> right. So I have a question for you. You know, um, and I was even reading through your timeline and, uh, you know, the company timeline, and there's some jokey stuff in there, right? And it says, you know, some of the little uh, bits on the timeline end with a little kind of joke, right? And, and one of them says, at this point, Rich starts to question the way we named some of these restaurants. I did. I, I mean, I, I think I was in a period of my life where I thought it was funny to do those things. And by the time we did the third one, I think it was Lawrence of Oregano. I said, I, I think this is enough. But here's my question, because it reminds reminded me of something as I was kind of marinating in the history of the company and in your history and that stuff, right? This is not at all the image you project today and haven't for a long time. You know, we're 50 years in. I wrote a book several year, a couple of years back called Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll about the, how the American chef revolution started, right? The beginnings of your restaurateur career started against that, you know, that, that sex, drugs, and rock and roll backdrop, that era. I, I was part of that culture. I mean, um, Sex, yeah. Drugs, yeah. <laughs> Rock and roll, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was all part of it. It was an interesting time. I, I, I think, like, it seemed to me like in 1969, 1970, 71, when we opened, there was a lot of interesting things going on. But that also kind of broke the the piggy bank of like creativity, right? Like, like I feel like that enabled a certain freedom, a certain irreverence, like a lot of things that I think about when I think about the early days of your company, to me is kind of part and parcel of that era. There is some truth to it, but I, I will tell you a story that a friend of mine who uh, went to the University of Denver and got a restaurant management degree, and I was very impressed, uh, said, let me help you with the creativity of the, you know, when you do your first menu. And he said, but, We've got to get high. And uh, so <laughs> so we did. And I, I thought we had created one of the great menus of all times until the next day when I read it, and it was awful. And I realized I didn't need to get high to be creative. In fact, it was probably better if I didn't. I don't know why it was an exciting, uh, creative time, but it just was. I responded to the fact that people liked it so much. They liked, they got what I was doing. It, it took a few months. It was about, I don't know, two, three months till it caught on, which seemed like a long time to me. But uh, people responded to it. So I just felt confident and kept doing it. And, you know, I always thought I had a sense of humor and I just used it. And I had a lot of funny friends. Your late business partner, 
who you started the company with, was in real estate. I haven't seen much written about this in profiles I've read about you, but every operator I know, including a lot of just chef operators, right? And I think the general public doesn't have much of an understanding of this, right? How many restaurants come about because of the real estate possibility, because of the deal that was available, because of the space that became available. People talk about you, they talk about the ideas, they talk about the concepts, they talk about the creativity. What about the real estate piece of it? How big has your understanding of real estate, of your understanding of the possibilities of a location or a space, how much has that played into your success? Everything matters. To me, it made a big difference. I, Jerry, knew the city backwards and forwards. He found the location. I questioned them. Um, you know, there didn't seem to be a lot of traffic around there, people around there. It wasn't a hot spot in Chicago. And he felt it was the right thing, and I just listened. I, I just agreed with him. I think real estate has a lot to do with it. I think the concept and the ability to do great food, that's number one. And, you know, know what the right management is and know how to train and develop people. I think that's all a big part of the success of, uh, that we've had. But the location, I think you could sometimes overcome an average or poor location, but it helps to have a great location. How much of, I mean, I'm not asking, obviously, I don't I imagine this is even a number that's been crunched, right? But how much of what you all do is there's an, we have an idea in search of a space and how much of it is, Someone's put us onto a space and what will work there? Generally speaking, for me, the idea comes first. I have like idea files and let's say the four of us are sitting around and we talk about doing a particular type of restaurant and I start writing my notes and start thinking about it. And then the important thing to me is the food. We have a great test kitchen and I always have great chefs working, you know, in the test kitchen that could you know, uh, that understand what I'm thinking and, and could start making the food. So we get the idea and we make the food and we don't have to make a whole menu, but I like to know four or five, six things that we might serve. And if I like them enough, we go further. And often then we start looking for the proper location. It could work the other way around where people could present us with a location happened recently. Someone presented us with a, a water location that we thought was exceptional, and we started thinking of what we would do, but we actually had the ideas in mind prior to us knowing about the location. Yeah. So you're a tremendous archiver of ideas, snippets of ideas, right? Scraps of paper with ideas. Always do. These things don't tend to fall off the radar. They go somewhere. Exactly. I mean, if you, I have two offices at home and one is just full of ideas of things that I'd like to do in my files and so forth. So no, I'm always getting ideas. I'm always writing them out. I'm always filing them where they need to be filed. And, yeah. and I refer to them. So a moment that struck me again, I, I, I almost thought it had to be a joke, but I don't know why it would be on the website. It must be real. Is this right, Jerry, when your first restaurant earned out, talked you into taking a stab at retirement? Is that a true story? Very true. And you actually did it and went to Los Angeles for one year? And I didn't go for a year. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what happened. Money was not the number one thing. I just wanted the opportunity to try some of my ideas. We wanted to make money, but my goal was to make 15000 a year 
and have a credit card. I never had one. And uh, Jerry's goal was to make 12000 He had a lot of money at the time, uh, but that was what his goal was. And uh, he was a diabetic, and he never thought he would live long. And uh, after we paid off the restaurant, it was about the end of the first year, said, Rich, I, I'm going to retire. Uh, he loved California. He had spent a lot of time there in the winters. He said, why don't you come? He said, you know, you hit your goal. You got your credit card. You're making your $15,000. And he kept at it. He just kept talking to me about it. And I thought after a while that it might be a good idea. And it was very funny because... You remember Ann Landers? Of course. Okay. Well, we should say who this is. She, Ann Landers was an advice columnist. Yeah. Exactly. And her sister yeah. was Dear Abby. Abby, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, she had a husband named Jules, letterer. And he approached us right around the time when we were about, I don't know, a month or two away from paying off the restaurant. And he had had a uh, car rental business in Europe, I think in London. And he loved grunts. And it was really a hot restaurant at the time. Everybody was going there. And he approached us and he said, I want to take you guys to Europe. I want to take you guys to London. I want to take you guys wherever we could go. This idea is going to work everywhere. And we laughed. You know, here we're planning on retiring. And uh, we went back. He couldn't believe that we said no. But the money wasn't that important to us. And he was, you know talking about the type of money we could make at the time. So I went and I tried it and I was there for a couple months and it drove me crazy. I realized that there was only so much basketball I could play. That was your sport? Uh, basketball and baseball, yeah. Okay. And I just said to Jerry, I'm going back to work. And that was it. And I'll never retire. You know, I'll slow down. I'll do different things within the business. But uh, it gave me a real sense of what retirement was like. I didn't have any real hobbies. I still don't. I do restaurants. It's such a strange question. I'm sure you've been asked it before, but there is such a disconnect between the size of your operation and the, your persona. You're such a soft-spoken guy. Everyone talks about you as the nicest guy. You know, in American life, that's sort of incompatible with your level of success. It seems almost like a, like a metaphysical impossibility. What drives you? What's driven you to do is like someone who took a stab at retirement very young, even though it didn't take, even that seems incompatible with someone who's grown a company with as many concepts and as much business as you do to this day. What is it that drives you to keep doing more? It's fun for me. I, I don't need to take a salary. I don't need to make any more money, but I'm a creative person and I need to exercise that creativity. And uh, I've got a great team of partners. And what I always say is my main job is making my partners successful. And if I could help them create a concept that will be successful, naturally they take part in that. And uh, in terms of being a nice person, I've had a lot of therapy in my life. This was actually going to be one of my next questions, yeah. I think I have peace of mind. I mean, in, in terms of answering the question, you know, why I, I'm not a hostile type of guy, I just feel lucky to love what I do, love my family. I, I can't believe sometimes that the three kids that we have are in the business and not they're not there because they're Rich and Martha Melman's kids. They're there because they do a great job. I wouldn't let them 
just do it if it was if I was carrying them. It's it's quite the opposite. So I have so much to be thankful for. My methods work for me. I think there's enough stress in general in life. I don't want to add that to people's lives. And it works for me. Hey, I am not a pushover. Oh, yeah, there's no way. I think I'm a tough guy underneath that acts nice. But, <laughs> but I, I mean, there's people, not a lot of them, but there's people that have seen the other side of me. Um, and I'm competitive. I was competitive when I was an athlete. I'm competitive in the restaurant business. I'm not going to do anything illegal or immoral, but I want to win. When we open a restaurant, I want it to be great. That's who I am. I appreciate your guys' patience. I'm going to turn it over this way in just a second. I did want to ask you about this therapy piece, because again, in reading about the company, if what I've read is accurate, it's not just that you've had a lot of therapy in your life. There is a, is this a, is this a fair way to put it? There is a culture of therapy within this company? Yeah. Let me tell you how it started for me. I dated a girl, and I'm like 20 years old, so I'm dating a girl. I'm about 20, 21 years old, maybe 22. Her father was a psychiatrist, and I'd be in the house and not pay much attention to him, and I didn't think he was paying much attention to me, but he was. And he would tell her things about me, and she would tell me what he said. Perceptive things. Yeah. You weren't on the couch, but he was psychoanalyzing you. And I knew he was right. And so I got interested in therapy. I mean, it was just sort of fun to hear about myself and things that I was doing. Were these um, kind of like fortune teller, sort of innocuous things that he was observing? Or were these things that he was observing that he felt like you needed to work out? He might say things like he could only get so involved right now. Uh, He's got other goals and thoughts and it would be sometimes that or sometimes he'd be more perceptive and say something about me i can't recall exactly what some of those things were but i know they rang home as true to me and i asked my girlfriend at the time who by the way is a therapist today herself I asked her if she could ask her mom or dad for someone that I might see. And I found it interesting to find out about myself. So I was always aware that I could be better, that I could be, you know, more thoughtful, get more insight into myself. And it was a good thing for me. And it made such a a difference in my life. It changed my perspective so much that it became part of our culture. We, we have a very strong culture. You encourage people within the company to go through that exercise, that process. Does the company pay for that? Here, well, RJ, why don't you jump in here? Yeah. You know, I don't know when it became formalized, probably sometime in the, in the late 70s or early 80s when the company started to become more organized. But you started a fund early on that paid for therapeutic services for people to do so. I think it's part of our coaching as we're talking to young leaders about them developing themselves, both chefs, managers, you know, anyone who really wants to grow. I think we look, it, it's certainly not a prerequisite for them to grow, but getting insightful about yourself is really, I I think, important for your ability to coach and develop other people. If you can't take care of yourself, it's almost impossible to do it for others. And, um, you know, the benefit 
of paying for therapy or therapeutic services over time has has certainly morphed just like everything in healthcare has. But as of today, every single employee has access to five or six free therapy sessions a year, uh, even if you're an hourly person, because there's stressful parts of the job. There are things that happen outside, uh, you know, traumatic, traumatic things that happen. But everyone has that that access. And, and that's very important for us to pay for. And when we're looking at insurance programs and we're looking at healthcare providers, uh, people with strong mental health networks are always really important for us. A strong word with us is development. And we work an awful lot on the development of our people. Rarely do young are young people fully developed. It doesn't happen that way. It takes years and years of living to, to, to be developed and mistakes in addition. So I like when our leaders work on themselves and develop themselves. There's been an awful lot of talk within the industry largely on the kitchen side, but within the industry in the last couple of years, and especially in the last 15, 16 months, as you know, the, the pandemic has given people, you know, no one wanted it, but given them some downtime, time away from restaurants, time to reflect. There's been a lot of talk about mental health in this industry. Would you all have termed what we're talking about and in, in, in terms of the company culture, would you have termed it mental health when you started? Like you just said, this goes back decades, right? Would you have termed it that? Or did it just seem like this is something that's going to facilitate kind of how we all get along, how we all work out problems? How It seems like it was a little more of that than it was what we would now term mental health. Does that question make sense? I think you and... And as an extension, the, the company think about it more in terms of caring. And I, I don't know that it's a, as unique an idea as it maybe was at the time, but I think you really believe that being able to take care of guests and take care of employees really started with taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it, you, you maybe hear it a lot these days, but I think back then, like I said, it was maybe a, a little more special of an idea. And so I, I, I think of it in terms of self-care more than I think of it as mental health. Mm-hmm. It's a hard enough job as it is. And I think we all know that from having done it for years and years and years. Uh, and it's certainly when you were starting Lettuce, I think part of the driver for your culture or our culture was how you watched your mom and Jerry's mom work in the restaurant business. And you really felt like uh, it's stressful enough that we really want to be a wonderful place and make it as easy a place to work as possible. Jared's right. My mom was a waitress and Jerry's mom was a waitress. And one of the things that bonded us together was our discussions about how they were treated in the restaurants they worked in. And we said, we're never going to let it be like that in our company. We want to make it the type of place where our moms would have felt great working. And that was something that was right there. It was top of mind. You know, you talk about helping an employee or finding out someone's down and instead of jumping on them, it's more like what's going on? You know, what, tell us, tell me about your day. What happened? Why, why did you show up late? Why did something happen? And that therapeutic therapeutic approach, yeah, therapeutic approach to asking questions about people, I think is, is the start of that, not just working on yourself, but also taking that approach to how you talk to anyone on the team or, or even a guest for that matter, you know, that people have, have crummy days and, and the pandemic has been probably accelerated what you're talking about going on that a lot of people reflecting on their life. They've been isolated alone, but 
this company has been around for a lot of ups and downs, the Vietnam War and, uh, you know, and the Gulf War and a and couple of recessions, a couple, couple of crashes in uh, 1988, 2008. Yeah. And the, the big difference between what's happening in the world today and all of that, and I think the, the part that for me is the worst about the last year and a half, and I, I say that understanding the health implications for so many people and how many people have lost their lives. I think I consider myself lucky that we haven't, you know, dealt with any illness like at, at that level. But the hardest thing was the day that we had to make very tough decisions about, you know, how many people we could have on the team right now and how many people did lose their jobs as a result. And that's something that had never happened in our 50 year history. But what I can say and This kind of ties into mental health. The team that was left and the people that were left working in our restaurants, I think there has been an unbelievable bond that's developed out of it. And um, in the scariest time that I can remember, I think the thing that made it less scary was actually there was a sense of togetherness. Um, Foxhole culture. Yeah. Yeah. By no means are we perfect. But I think one of the goals just became becoming a little bit safer and getting a little bit better every day. And that's, I think, something you've instilled since the beginning of this company that it's not just about, okay, we want to take care of our people. I think it's realizing that there's always room to improve. You started breakfast meetings and employee surveys, and I think we try to reinforce the culture every day. You know what makes it a little easier to to have a culture like ours? I always talk about the number one thing is you hire somebody, you should like them. Hire likable people if we're hiring a chef. Naturally, he has to have skills. Or her. Yes. But I have to like him first. Or it doesn't go, I don't go too far in terms of the interview. When you like people, it makes it easier to be concerned when they have problems or whatever it might be. And we've got so many people that would been that have been with us 25, 30, 35, 40 years that uh, it's sort of nice and we care about these people. You just said something interesting. You were talking about the chef thing. This is something I very much wanted to ask about. This company began and evolved at a time when chefs were on the ascension. Very much. There was a lot of friction during those early years between owners who had been the traditional, people who were known to the public were the empresarios, right? The people whose name was on the door. You know, there were these legendary stories of conflict, you know, in LA, Wolfgang Puck and Patrick Tarai. That was one of the early fissures, right? Between chefs and owners. You know, in New York, you had like David Boulay and Drew Naporant, right? There there are these, this was all within a five, six year period. You have been largely, it seems to me from the outside, and I know you have worked with some very, you know, big name, brand name chefs, right? But it seems to me by and large, this company has managed to have its entire lifespan defined more by hospitality, ideas, reputation, not dependent on the chef. It's been much more about the name, whether you want to call it the Melman name or the Let Us Entertain You name or the individual concept names. Has that been a conscious decision, if you agree with the way I'm characterizing it? And has that been a difficult road to hoe? I think that we've always had tremendous talent. I didn't necessarily go for somebody that had a big name, although we've had partnerships with all different types of chefs. And I have uh, some interesting partnerships that are coming up. I always knew what I wanted in food 
in the particular restaurant that I was working on and always went for the best person that I could find. And often, I remember in the early days, we found people before they got to be well-known. We did that an awful lot. I remember there was a young man named Dennis Terzak, and he had a brother who was much more well-known, and people didn't know Dennis. He was an amazing Italian cook. And we did a restaurant called Avanzari with him. And people loved it. And so I think we've always had talent more than we had names. But was it a conscious decision, I guess, not to plant the seeds for a situation that would lead to the inevitable? Seems like you've been very smart about setting up constructs that were not built for conflict. You've said this a minute ago, hiring people you like. It's like watching your friend date the wrong person, right? There's so many stories in this industry of an owner and a chef who clearly clearly from the minute they shook hands, it was going to end up poisonous. It seems like you've just been very level-headed and and just having no desire for that kind of dynamic in your life. I think I'm very good at understanding chefs, probably because I can't cook. I need them. In fact, I surround myself with a lot of people that I need. I'm only good at a couple things, but I know how to put together a team and I know how to share. John Joho was a wonderful chef in France, very talented, and we've been partners now for probably close to 40 years. Gabino Sottolino, another chef that came from Europe, and we did Ambria together. I've had a number of uh, chef partners like that. I sort of understand them. They're artists. I work well with artists. You're describing yourself almost in a protosorial way. Maybe more like coach. Good coach. You put the team together. You know how to bring out the best in each of them. You know how to harmonize them. And by no means, I mean, I think just even taking a step back from necessarily chef partners, I would call it partnership in general. And mm-hmm. you've had 80 plus partners over the years and you know, no one bats a thousand, but you've had more success than the average person in picking the right people. And I think yeah. that started with Jerry. Yeah. And helping you pick. Yeah. I have a lot of confidence in my ability to surround myself with the right type of people. So here's the thing. Let's say I want to do a restaurant and you're a chef that cooks that food beautifully. Well, I want to spend time with you. I want to make the relationship good for you, good for me, good for us. And I pretty much can tell you what I'm going to expect of you. And how open are you? For example, I want someone that has talent. We're assuming that I like you. I want somebody that has wonderful talent. I want somebody that is going to get along with people, that's going to be open to developing a team. And I'll go into details as to what I mean. And then I want to know that you're open to being a businessman. Now, I don't want you to be 80% business and 20% chef. I might want you 25% business and 75% chef. But you want someone who's going to be clear-eyed about financial realities, about decisions that need to be made for those reasons, about course correction that needs to happen when things aren't working, about things that may need to be 86 from a menu if they're just simply not selling, these kinds of decisions. You don't want ego to be the primary decision driver. Exactly. Yeah. And you're very, this is the, this is the nice guy, but not a pushover part of you. This is something I've learned relatively late. I'm a writer. I don't like to, you know, I have an agent to have the kind of conversations uh you're talking uh about, uh but I've learned it's just very healthy at the onset of, at the beginning of any, because I sometimes collaborate, things like this, any collaborative thing to just go, look, this is how I work. Is this going to be okay? Yeah. You know, and then they've been forewarned. Yeah. And I could sort of tell what, 
go ahead, Jerry. Well, you, I think you're also at times very flexible. You get the most excited when you're working on something, uh, when you're working on new food, new drinks. And I think you look for people that get excited about that process too, that aren't so rigid in their way is that they can't participate in that creative experience. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, you like people, you want them to get you excited. You try to get them excited. I'm working with someone I think is going to be a real star in the Japanese world. Chef? Chef. And, you know, it's very traditional, a lot of the sushi and the things that they do. And we've been talking a lot about how flexible he could be. What's going to be the next thing in the next year, two years? Where is sushi going? What's what's happening with Japanese cuisine? And he sort of got excited about it. And then I uh, brought some ideas. I went to my files and... I, I said, what can sushi be combined with? What can you do? I, I wanted to see how he'd react. And he was very open and said, well, let me show you. And I think next week he's going to show me some ideas along those lines. You're going to have a tasting. Mm -hmm. But collaboration is a two-way street in our organization. That it's not just that chefs work with you it's the, and are us and vice versa. That you want, we want ideas to flow both directions. Mm -hmm. You know, chefs don't just cook and managers don't just manage. We like to pair people together. And I think that maybe ultimately leads to a, a healthy relationship. But it's not to say that we don't have breakups, by the way. We've had plenty of people. You can't have a company this big and not, yeah. Yeah, but. It's not um, the firm. <laughs> but, uh, well, that's why you, you know, but. Having batted a thousand. Correct. And and there's some people that are destined to be alumni and those people you cheer on. I, I love it. I'm proud of them. I, I encourage them. If somebody wants to go and do it, I, I wanted to do that. Uh, I understand. Can I ask you, Rich, to loan that mic to Jared? And let me talk mainly to these guys for just a minute. So I wanted to ask you guys this. I have for years thought that one of the most fun things for a childhood would be to have a parent in the restaurant business. Same thing as having a parent in the entertainment business. You know, this backs, you know, the element of like going backstage. Restaurants to most people, you know, there is an entertainment factor, you know, for guests. But to grow up with a certain comfort level in that setting, to be able to go into the kitchen, to be able to go behind the scenes, to be to be running around a dining room at an off hour. Can you guys just speak to this aspect of your childhood? If I throw it out very broadly, like some memories you all have of visiting your dad's restaurants as kids. Does anything come to mind? You're not wrong to say that that was was, uh, our, our youth was probably much, much different than most of the kids we grew up with. Their dads were lawyers and professionals and, you know, whatever jobs. And we had way more fun going to work with our dad. I have vivid memories. I was six years old and we had opened Shaw's Crab House, which is still open to this day. And uh, I'm not sure if he needed me to give him a break from being with him. But he said, go play in the cooler. But uh, <laughs> but you play in the cooler at Shaw's and it had lobsters and crabs and, and clams and mussels. And it was like the most alive cooler you've ever been in. And as a six-year-old, uh, I asked him if I could take home some pets. And <laughs> I brought home a bucket of uh, clams and mussels uh, to be my pets. And I put them in a tank and I got home and I filled it with water. And they all died uh, a few hours later because I put them in fresh water. And no yeah. one told me yeah. that they live in salt water. Yeah. So, uh, but this you know, is the kind of thing I mean. But your, your childhood must have been chock full of that kind of mo those moments like that. Our childhood was amazing. We have an amazing mother. Uh, we have, you know. You know it, well, what was, I would say is that when you're six, I don't know that you have a frame of reference to know that what's happening is necessarily different than other people's lives. But I think what you kind of hinted at was that it was clear that um, 
our dad had a lot of fun with his job and had a lot of fun doing what he did. And I don't know that I appreciated till later, you appreciate till later what a gift that is to have a parent that really enjoys what they do. Um, and I, I think you did a, and, and mom did a great job of incorporating it into our lives as well. And I don't know that it was with any kind of intention, uh, or any hope that we would go into the business. It was just, we're going downtown and we're getting in the station wagon to go see dad's new project. And it happens that dad's new project is this like cool restaurant that as you start to just be in and experience, uh, you know, both from uh, going to you with the construction sites point of view and watching things come together and watching how we'd walk in and the place would be painted one color and we'd leave and it'd be a different color because you felt like it wasn't exactly right. It was really cool to watch things come together and to watch this company grow throughout our lives. By the way, there are downsides to having a famous restaurateur as a father too. You can't just open a lemonade stand. I think Jared uh, tried to this is very open specific. One. Wait, yeah, no, you, you had a couple of buddies over. I'm probably eight years old and going to go do a lemonade stand in the yard. And he says, you know, I got to try the lemonade first. You know, he wants to approve the lemonade. And then well, what if people don't want lemonade? You know, we have to come up with an alternative product to give them if they don't want lemonade. And, you know, it, this it, is not a joke. This actually yeah, this happened. happened. Yeah. Maybe what you're getting at is that he couldn't always turn it off either. Yeah. So. Let's go individually. RJ, at what age do you decide you want to get in on all this? In first grade, I wanted to buy like a toy camera, like a kaleidoscope. Thing. My parents told me I had to get a job and uh, to pay for it, and they paid me 10 cents an hour. It was, the, the whole thing cost about 20 bucks, or I'm sorry, two bucks. So I had to work about 20 hours to get it. And uh, they got me a job at Ed DeBevix, uh, which was a lot of fun for a six they or seven year old to up do an that. interview for you at yeah. Ed DeBevix, I think. Yeah. Maybe do an interview, an application, and it was fun. But for most of your life, you. Yeah, I've, I've thought I wanted to. Yeah, I, liked, I loved food. I liked food shows. Um, you know, back then it was Julia Child and uh, the Frugal Gourmet I would watch on TV. In high school, I said I want to like cook professionally. I was the end of high school and I got a job as a prep cook in one of the restaurants that you were working on. And you know, I'd been around the restaurants, but it was the first time that I was like, I want to do this. I went to college not for a restaurant or hospitality degree. I have a political science degree from Kansas, but in the summers, I'd come back and be cooking all summer. I, I worked, not odd jobs, I worked at Chili's in college as well as a line cook. I loved it. And from the moment I graduated college, five days after, I started working uh, for Lettuce as a sous chef and helped open a bunch of restaurants. And when I got to be about 25, I had learned enough in the kitchen. I realized that I probably wasn't going to do that for the rest of my life. I wasn't going to just be cooking, even though I felt like I had a great foundation. I got to work outside of the organization. I got to work up in Napa Valley for Cindy Paulson at Mustard's Grill. And Cindy was a lettuce alum as well and, and just truly the most wonderful person. And yeah, I worked at Martini House, which is no longer around and a few places in Minnesota. And I, I got to have a really great experience working outside and inside, like I said, the organization. And then when I was 25, I started managing in the front of the house. And I started as a young manager at RJ Grunts, his first restaurant. And um, that led to a career of opening restaurants for lettuce as a manager, growing into a general manager role. And then in 2008, Jared and I opened our first restaurant with Molly as well, uh, called Hub 51, that we became partners in the company. Jared, I need to ask you about an element of your you came to it, you made this decision a little bit later than your brother, but am I right? Is this accurate what I've read? You were flirting with the notion, this is a personal passion of mine, so I have to ask. Did you flirt with stand-up comedy, which is one of my absolute favorite things in the world? 
flirt might even be too strong, too strong a word. I my whole life, I I'll back up even a, a little bit further. I, I I would say mom probably handled eighty five percent of what went on in our day to day lives sure. as kids. But for whatever reason, if we were sick, if we were puking, she had a weak stomach. So that would somehow, that was like one of the few things that was truly your responsibility, dealing with a puking kid. Your father would like get, like the bat signal would go up and he'd be summoned to deal with That's this? That's you. So I remember being sick as a little kid one night and you laying in bed with me and you let me turn on the television and I saw the Johnny Carson show and it blew my mind. I'd never seen anything like it. And so- Roughly how old? Probably six years old. And so I always had a, a sort of a fascination with stand-up comedy. I don't think I'm theatrical enough. I don't think I'm funny enough, frankly. So did this never uh, get to the point of you actually doing like open mic nights and stuff so like that? So fast forward to us opening Hub 51 and I get a call one day. Hey, I just, it's from him, Rich. Uh, and you said, hey, I just got a call from a, a stand-up comic in town who wants to do a show about people that don't do comedy and have them try stand-up. And uh, I'm not going to do it, but I gave him your number and told him you'd do it. <laughs> <laughs> like, as I'm on the phone with him, I get another call from the comedian. And uh, he explains the idea that he had just, that Rich had just told me. And uh, I said, sure, I'll try it. So for about six months, I did it with him very casually. I'd go a couple times a week. And it culminated in us filming a television show for Channel 11. He, he was in some kind of deal with them. And the best thing that came out of it was the friendship with the stand-up comedian. I'm, I'm still super close with him to this day. He's uh, been opening for Sebastian Maniscalco. So he's sure. sort of like right on the brink of, I, I think, a big career breakthrough. He, did, I, a, he did a special. Uh, you know, yeah, he, filmed, he, just, uh, he has a special on Amazon and Apple TV. A gentleman named Pat McGann, but I, I got, I scratched the itch. You know, I, I saw enough to know that, wow, I don't think I have what it takes to put in the work to be great at this. At this point, we were already opening restaurants. And the thing about my career path, I worked in restaurants all throughout high school and college as a job, but I can still remember my first day. Uh, I, we had a joint venture with Popeye's Chicken. The gentleman that trained me is still with the company to this day, but I just remember instantly thinking, God, this guy is really great at his job. And I always liked the people I was working with. And so that's what I did all throughout high school and college, you know, just to have spending money. And by the time I got to be, you know, graduating, I realized there's nothing else I've done. And I think it's, you sort of worked in restaurants and same, a similar yeah. notion that you yeah. said, oh, yeah, there's nothing else. That, yeah, that, I seem, that seems to be catching my eye. So your sister Molly was going to be here. She had an opportunity to get on, get away, which is great. Glad she t glad she glad she didn't put it off from my humble podcast. That would have been a poor decision. Something I wanted to ask her, and I'm going to just ask you guys. I was fascinating in reading about her that she had been a teacher. She spent a number of years as a teacher. She actually taught in the South Bronx in New York City it's for some time. Um, one of the things she did when she came into the fold of the company was revamp the training program, if I'm correct. Can any of you in tandem or whoever wants the ball, to put it in your coaching terms, how, how does she fit into the, the mix of the siblings where the company is concerned? And how, related question, how have you three, the siblings, calibrated how you all interact within a company, which often is a recipe for disaster. I work with Molly every day. RJ has taken on a more global role as president of the company and Molly and I oversee a division together. And Molly is like maybe the unsung hero in this equation 
because I, I, I could not and would not be successful without her by my side. She, what she does on a day in and day out basis, she leads our training team. As you mentioned, she has a teaching background, but the amount of effort that she puts into this and making our team successful, overseeing a team of trainers and then training all the folks that work in our restaurant, I, I just I think she prefers a behind the scenes role, but I can't stress enough how important it is. I mean, and I, she And by the way, describing her as a trainer only almost is is, uh, is does not do justice no. to her at all. Oh yeah, and I didn't mean it that way. No, 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 we're, we're, we're saying so, that. Oh, saying you guys, that, yeah. That, that, to say that that is her right. in in general that would you would say that's well, her her job description. I think you guys did something this past week with the smoke out and you could explain a little festival. I'm sorry. We throw a festival yeah, called they the Windy throw City festival. Smoke Out. And it drew 75 80,000 people and it was pretty amazing and your sister did an amazing job and you could talk about that she schedules the whole thing so she's really orchestrating 400 people a day working in 25 different food kiosks and bars and I don't think it's an undertaking that either one of us could have done she just she is like the first person a new employee really sees and talks to. And she's just, I don't know, the bond she develops with the people working in the restaurants. I mean, she's like, makes it all happen. Like all the stuff behind the scenes that no one wants to think about. She really makes go. The three of them work together beautifully. It's almost shocking to me sometimes how well they get along, how much they back each other up. It's beautiful for me to see. Can I, can I ask you a very personal question? You've talked about it in many interviews. So I'm assuming... What's that? Who's his favorite? No, no, no. No, no, no. Everybody knows it's Jared. Whoa, you actually answered the question? <laughs> Molly's Martha's Oh, my favorite. God. second favorite for both. Well, now I feel like I can't ask this on the heels of all this laughter. No, you, you wanted to roll with your dad's business when you were a young man. He wouldn't give it to you. It caused a rift. Uh, it made a break. It, it, my, as my late grandmother would have said, it, the, the plate, it cracked the plate. Right, and you can never put it back together ex- the same way, and True. you never quite got past that. We were, no, I was much closer with my mom than I was my dad. My dad was sort of a cold guy and not very encouraging. He was, I mean, you know, I was an athlete. He never saw me play, and there were a bunch of things like that. And I just wasn't close with him, and this was just an extension of that. You know, I wanted to buy into the business and he thought I wasn't ready and I left and yeah. did it myself. But that left, but there was also a, a wake of, um, yeah, uh, we were I don't never, know if it was acrimony or what you would call it. I didn't dislike him. I felt somewhat indifferent. It was okay. I mean, uh, I, I think my competitiveness came out. I said, I'm going to show him. Okay. So that was my next question, which is if I imagine myself as like, you know, your ex-girlfriend's father, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm like, well, as part of what makes John, you know, the old movie, what makes Johnny run, Mm -hmm. you know, as part of what makes Rich run that moment. I mean, anything father and son is very powerful. Sure. Was that part of the wind at your back this whole time? I think so. Yeah. I, I, uh, I wanted to show him. You're still showing him. Well, he's no longer. No, I know. Yeah. No, but I mean, yes, in in a way. In the abstract, you're still I, showing him. It's funny when I think back to things that he ever said to me that meant something. In 1976, we bought the pump room, and that was, you know, a star-studded type place in Chicago. 
it had fallen down and it wasn't as popular and so forth. But I remember my parents, when we were younger, we were middle class, lower middle class people. I remember my parents being excited about going to the pump room for their anniversary, but they went late and they had dessert and how thrilling it was. And, you know, maybe they'd see a star there or something. At any rate, we bought it. And it's about our third year into it. And my dad came in with like five of his friends and they were sitting around this round table and they invited me to join them. And one of his friends said, Maury, you're the restaurant expert. And he said, no, the real expert is rich. And uh, it was like shocking. I didn't get too many of those from him. And, uh, you know, I felt good that he was able to say that. Of course. But we always, you know, we, we weren't as close maybe as we could have been. Yeah. Generationally, not the strangest dynamic. That was not an atypical dynamic between fathers and sons. Very true. Time. Yeah. yeah, very true. And it makes, you know, and it seems like so much of what you built is in direct contrast to that, right? You, mm-hmm. you a, a culture of therapy, a culture of communication, a culture of openness and mutual support. And the, the second question, which I was going to ask when I said, I want to ask you two related questions is I look at the dynamic in this room. I look at the absolute, uh, I'm not just blowing smoke. I'm sure I'm not the first person to remark on it. The comfort level amongst like you guys aren't there's, you guys aren't like looking out of the corner of your eye to see if the, what you're saying is okay with dad. No. Um, there's, it's a completely, there is no tension palpable no. in this room. No. But so what I was going to say is I would imagine to you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's, it's a question as a statement, right? I, I have to think for you with the imperfections in your own relationship with your dad, mm-hmm. that to have three kids who not only do you have this relationship with, but who you've successfully integrated into this organization, which you're still here and, you know, as a part of, right? You didn't just bequeath it to them. Sure. You all work together. Yes, we do. I would imagine that with the, um, I I don't know, I don't want to say trauma sounds melodramatic, but with the relationship you had with your dad, that to have not one, but three kids successfully working with you has to be an enormous win for you personally that has to be i would think that would be one of the for all the business success you've had i would think this is one of the great accomplishments for you in your life it is keep in mind that he denied me a chance to be his partner and i've often thought it's one of the reasons i've had so many partners i know how it feels and when I feel that people have a talent, I want them to be a partner. I want to share with them. So, yes. Without getting into the nuts and bolts and specific numbers, and again, anyone, if you guys want to weigh in on this, sure. you know, again, getting ready to talk to you guys and reading up and also reading through your own site. You know, I'm on the, the company website and it says, part, there's a tab, partners, and you hit it. It's like a cast of thousands. You know? I mean, not literally, but there's a lot of people who are deemed partners, again, without getting into any specifics you don't want to get into. What does that mean? Like, what does it mean for someone to be a partner within this company, just in the, in the very broad strokes? There is not one right or wrong way to run a business. I think that you could run a business that has no partners. You could run a business that goes public. You could, you know, and, and have stock plans. And But that never interests you. It doesn't really interest us. We enjoy being a private company. But for us, Partnership is both a reward for the chefs, for the 
operators. Um, operators, the general managers who need to continue to grow, have a chance to own part of a restaurant, restaurants with us, um, have true equity, have buy-sell agreements with that equity to have a chance to, to really earn a lot more than, than they do today and, and a chance to continue to develop uh, their teams below them and grow younger partners to work on them. And, you know, at a very simple level, there is a responsibility of partnership of taking care of each other. You wake up every day thinking of how do you do better for your partners and, and vice versa, that, that, that the best partners do that. Is there also an element, I would imagine, like I know a lot of people, uh, friends of mine who have grown their businesses, made uh, employees of theirs, partners eventually. A part of the reason, and it sounds mercenary and I don't mean it to, but is it keeps them it's kind of a way of keep making sure people are going to be around for the long haul. Sure. It also allows us, to, it, It's. I think for us, it's allowed us to grow as well that, you know, we have 110 restaurants or so, 100 restaurants and 75 partners. You talk about virtually a partner almost for every restaurant in the, in the company. It's that level of accountability. And there's a difference between, I think, being a manager, you know, that we talk about internally, there's a difference between being a babysitter and a parent. And this puts a lot of parents out in the organization to take care of the stores. I think if you go back to your partnership experience with your dad, part of the underlying feeling was that you were really making it happen. He wasn't in the business. You were the one that cared. You were the one that was doing it. And I, I don't think partnership is something we take lightly at all. It is when we recognize someone that cares just as much as we do about these businesses and when I think about the partners I work with on a day-to-day basis, I mean, this is they're my first phone call of the morning. They're my last phone call of the evening. I mean, these are people that care about the business as much as I do. And I think when you identify someone that feels that way, that has that drive, how would you not want to be partners with them? Because you remember that feeling in yourself and having it rejected. I remember after I left my father and I worked for another gentleman at a successful restaurant and he promised me a partnership and I could tell after working with him for a while that we were different people. Uh, He was very controlling. I often thought that he never knew what I really could do because he wouldn't let me do anything. And I remember literally talking to 20 different people. I, I had $10,000 saved up, and that wasn't enough. I got turned down by everybody that uh, I approached. And that enters into the equation. I, I knew what it was like for people to turn me down for partnerships, and I knew how I felt about my father turning me down for partnership. And I think I decided I wanted to be different. Well, I think there's also something, I, I mean, I've been a writer for a long time, but I did used to work for companies, uh, corporations and, and small companies. You know, you very often to get what you want or what you deserve, what you're worth, maybe is a better way to say that, you very often had to go get a competing job offer in order for people to really take you. And then you could have the moon, right? They would turn you down for a $5,000 raise. You go get a competing offer and they'd give you anything you wanted to stay, right? And I feel like you all proactively give people what they deserve. I mean, that sounds kind of trite to hear it said out loud, but is it, is that, is that, is it, is at some level, is it that simple? I want people to feel good about what they're making. There's no question. You know, um, I said money's not number one, but money is a very important thing if you want to grow. I imagine of all the partners we have, there are some that are happy just with the restaurants they have and they're making good money and they're making their bonuses or profit distributions. And there's other ones that want to grow. 
and that's what propels this organization. I think we'll have uh, the next couple of years some real growth um, because of the young partners that we have. Partnership is not a destination here, right? It's sort of the first step of the rest of your career at Lettuce, if, if, if that's where you're at. You become a partner and it's a celebratory thing, but the real excitement starts when you're doing more and and paying off the restaurants and, and distributing. And, and I think Jared said it the best is that we take it very seriously, that it's hopefully a forever relationship. Talk to me about where the company's headed. There's some markets that you all have never been in traditionally. For a company as big as this is, in a fairly confined number of localities, right? But going into some new ones, can you talk about how what, what's been the kind of decision driver on where and which concepts and kind of as much as you're able to talk about it now, what's sort of the short-term vision for whatever you want to call it, expansion? Let us today, I think we're in 12 states, 110 restaurants. Something we say internally, and it applies to a lot of what happens, but if you want to look to the future, uh, you know, take a look at the past of what they've done. Lettuce, we believe, has consistently thought of new and creative ideas, has expanded some existing concepts, and the future might not look so much different than that for lettuce. But even before COVID started, we knew that we wanted to work in some other states, that we wanted, there was going to be opportunities. Um, South, we had already signed a deal for Austin, Texas, pre the pandemic. We had signed a deal for Miami at the Val Harbor shops pre the pandemic. Having geographic diversity is important for us. We have partners who want to move to other places that they don't want to spend their whole lives in Chicago. And it's very exciting. We have a, a partner, a woman named Sue, who moved to ABBA for Austin because she wanted to move her family there. We have people who are volunteering to move to Florida because that's an opportunity for them. So listening to what people want to do. We have a, a Japanese partner who would love to do something in Japan, and we're going to explore those opportunities. And it's kind of amazing, the stuff that we have coming. We can't be super specific about everything right now, but of course. I think some of the most exciting projects, developments in the world are coming up, and it's just an honor to be part of those conversations. You know, I hear you all talk, and it feels like, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so please tell me if this is accurate or not. You know, this is an industry, both from the ownership side and from the kitchen side, that very often ego is a major factor. I don't hear a lot of ego in, in the way you all talk about it. It seems to me like there's a lot of sort of subordinating your own personalities, your own needs to kind of the needs of the organization the needs of the organism. You, I've heard the term, the company comes up a lot of times in this conversation. You, you all seem to be very much about the big picture for- I'm sorry to interrupt. No, go. I think that's partially your coaching mentality. Is that a fair statement, first of all? Does that seem like an accurate- Well, what I'm going to say is that restaurants are a team sport. This is not a small undertaking to get an, an individual restaurant uh, working uh, or a whole organization of restaurants. And I feel lucky my whole life that I've played on some great teams. And I think you've been a part of some great teams. And on great teams, everyone has a role. And um, the objective is winning. And I think that that is kind of your mindset. I think we'd all rather play on a winning team than be the best player on the team. Exactly. And I've been on teams where both that I was the worst player or the best player and playing at a high level, you want to win. You want to have uh, some success under your belt. And I think yeah. you have kept that healthy balance that you have to enjoy what you're doing, but you have to be successful at it too. We've just passed our 50th year and we're lucky to have had more or less a singular leader here for, uh, for those 50 years. And we're lucky to work with our dad. 
but lettuce is going to go on, you know, without you. It's going to go on without us. And I'm not trying to be morbid, but, you know. It's life. It's life. Yeah. If something happened to us, we got hit by a comet. This organization has unbelievable leadership below us. But to put it in your sports term, you got a deep bench. We have a deep bench. Yeah. And they will play. And just like the Yankees can exist without George Steinbrenner, and they can exist without their coach, and they the Yankees will be the Yankees. I guess partially we view ourselves hopefully as the Yankees, and we want that means every year. You're allowed to say that in Chicago. Every year we're allowed to say that because every <laughs> well, year. The Sox are good this year. Because, <laughs> we want the record we, of the Yankees. Yankees yeah. Yeah. We want the 27 World Championships. Um, right. Yeah, the Cubs' uh, record as as much as uh, yeah. we love them. Yeah. But we want to win year in and year out, and that means showing up at spring training and doing it well, and realizing that you need a great team to win. I have, my last question is for you, Rich. I have to ask this question. You know, again, reading up uh, on your on your story, right? And you've talked a little bit about your t- in in other contexts in this interview. You've talked about you know things you say to people at the outset of a new relationship, right? There were two very important. I don't know if we call them interviews or conversations, right? That I've read described. One was um, when you were looking for somebody to partner with you, or early on, um, got a lot of no's, and then and then your late partner, Jerry, said, "Okay, that was a big moment." There's this other story I just loved. It's Kevin Brown, correct? Pivotal figure in the history of this company, who you met as a student. You were visiting his school. He recognized you. He introduced himself. You two ended up going and having a meal together. You end up hiring this person as a student. They end up like running the company for a number of years. It seems to me that both from the aspiring person side of the seesaw, right? And then from the other side of the seesaw, your judge of character and your your understanding of how to convey what you're looking to do and who you are and what you bring to things seems very finely honed. You know, it seems like that's a real, on an animal level almost, a skill that you have or an ability you have. Some people would call something like that a superpower these days. Can you speak to me in whatever way you want to take it about how you come to important conversations, how you size up a potential partner or employee and how you go about evaluating people in these in these crucial moments. You know, I think about it in the movie Wall Street, if you remember Wall Street, when Bud Fox is about to walk into Gordon Gecko's office. It's bad screenwriting because nobody would say this out loud, but he says right before he walks in, life boils down to a series of moments. This is one of them. And it's about the fact that he needs that he needs that meeting to work, right? You've had a lot of meetings like this over your time, right? How do you make them work? I'm a good listener. I think when you talk too much, you miss a lot. I'm instinctive. You trust your gut? Very much. I know the questions to ask for me to feel comfortable. I know not to go too fast. I want people to show me who they are. I know the skill levels I need. I think I said earlier today that my strengths are real small, but I am a great builder of teams. I know how to build teams. I know how to get the most out of people. It's not about me, it's about my ability to build the team. And I just feel very confident. I also know that I'm gonna make mistakes. I don't put so much pressure on myself to not allow me to make a mistake. And I know how to correct it. It's, it's important to know what you need. It's important to know what you need in a wife. It's important to know what you need in a partner. I think it was said earlier, I know myself real well. 
and that helps me a lot. I know who I am, what I need, helps me greatly to decide what kind of people I need on the team. You mentioned in the beginning of that answer, instincts. Is that something you believe can be developed, trained, accumulated over time? Or do you feel like that's something one, I mean, by definition, I guess, that's something you're born with to some extent, but do you feel that can be developed or do you feel like that's a luck of the draw thing? No, I, I, I think almost everything in a human being can be developed unless you have a real handicap or something. It's learning from your mistakes. That's a big part of instinct. Again, knowing yourself, knowing what you need, having confidence in yourself. That's a, that's a big thing. Intellectually, I'm, I'm nowhere near what a lot of people in the organization are. I'm practical. I have common sense. I know what works. I pay a lot of attention to the public. How do you how do you mean? I mean, I know what that means, but how do you get it? How do you solicit that? How do you tune into that? You and I go out to eat and I listen. I listen to what you have to say. I listen to and watch what you eat. I watch how you react and I'm able to put it into the proper context in terms of what we have to do for for our customers. Um, customers and life and the world is changing. And I'm, I always think that I'm right on top of it, that I pay attention and I'm flexible enough to make the changes that are necessary. And we're talking about an omakase place that the kids are doing. And uh, we were talking about how we want to make it more fun. Isn't that what you said? different so we don't give too much away okay. right now. <laughs> okay. You know, I was saying that I'm not the smartest guy, but I have common sense and I have a, I have great awareness. I think that's important. I've honed that over the years and I have a lot of confidence in my opinions of people. You might want to say something. He led you a bit with Kevin Brown and I think he's not mentioned here. You might want to just talk about how you know he's been a... Well, Kevin, we've been partners for 42 years. And yeah, he's the CEO Kevin, of the Kevin's, a, Kevin's an amazing partner. And uh, in fact, I was just with him. We were at a, I think we do things that people wouldn't expect us to do. We were at a bow tasting, Kevin and myself. We have a company that we sold the majority of. And now this company is called Wow Bow. It's, uh, what do they call it, a dark kitchen? Ghost kitchen. Ghost, ghost kitchen. kitchen. It's a ghost kitchen concept that uh, has 350 units and going to soon be over 500. And uh, we kept talking to the kids that are running it about just making sure the bow is great and the rice balls are great. And so they invited us to try them. And Kevin and I did that. Kevin's been a great partner. Rich, hearing you talk a second ago, you said, you know, things have changed. I forget the exact words. Things change a lot and you feel like you're right on top of it. I'm sure you've observed this and whoever wants to get in on this question. I have observed that, you know, people north of a certain age in the industry have a very hard time bearing in mind that, as I like to say very simply, things change. There is a restaurateur, I probably should not name him, although anyone in New York will know who I mean. When Momofuku Sambar several years ago, one of David Chang's restaurants, which I happened to love at the time, got a three-star review in the New York Times. And this restaurateur said to anybody who would, was near them at the time, how is that okay? You know, there's no seat backs on the benches. All the waiters are in t-shirts. Now this was someone who came up in the 80s. 
And my response to that was, don't you understand this is the current version of what you did? And what, what you're saying about David is what the old French guard in New York was saying about you. This is the natural way of things. You seem to have a very healthy perspective on this and an acceptance of the fact that things didn't stop changing when you started opening your restaurants with the funny names, right? And you want to keep pace with that and you embrace that. This seems to me to be not necessarily the default position. I'm not even going to say of most restaurant people of, of roughly your age, right? But of most people roughly your age. It is, it is, I believe, a real discipline in life. You know, I'm 54 now. I try to bear this in mind all the time. Things change, right? And I think when you stop accepting that, that is one of the things that will start to make you to yourself and others old. How have you managed to maintain an openness to that? And then I'd love to know how the company, you know, keeps pace. You know, it's a 50-year-old company. But Rich, let's start with you, please. How have you managed to keep an open mindset to just the constant churning of change? I, I think it goes under the category of awareness. You better be doing some things that are appealing to the 20 and 30-year-olds, not the 70-year-olds or you're not gonna be in business for a long time. So instead of criticizing them, surround yourself with some people that understand where the 30-year-olds are going and why they're spending money. It's a survival instinct in some ways. I enjoy watching what the young people want. It's just, it's just sort of being alive, being aware, being, it's exciting. You know, the 80-year-olds aren't doing too many exciting things in restaurants. I think you have made a conscious effort in your life or a decision even to be positive. Yeah. And I yeah. think that with 50 years plus of experience comes a lot of change, some good, some bad. You've lived through your partner dying and you've we lived through this past year and a half and seen how painful it is for so many people uh, in this business and had to see so many people lose their jobs. But through everything, you, I think, are an optimist. I am. And no question. But you choose it, which I think is interesting. And I think you've helped teach us that as well, that you can choose your attitude. Mm -hmm. And rather than curse the change, it's, I think, you've come to enjoy it, to embrace it, to learn from it. Yeah. And I think, like you're starting to hint at, it's part survival instinct. When you lost Jerry... That was probably the most traumatic thing in your career. It was a rough year. But yeah. surviving it gave yeah. you a confidence. Absolutely. And a desire to overcome anything. Yeah. So I think, you know, at your heart, you are very optimistic. There's no question about it. I'm a definite optimist. A lot of people do restaurants. They could have 10 or 15 restaurants, but they do similar type of restaurants. They feel comfortable with that. We go all over the place. There's been three Michelin star down to fast food hamburgers. Right? Yeah. Literally and everything in I between. Mean, we worked with Playboy for years. We did, you know, McDonald's, you know. I, I've been all over with all different types of people, all different types of partners. So there is a flexibility. I mean, we're talking about a well-regarded chef that we might do a project with. And like RJ just said, and we're talking about hamburger places and their bow places. And I think because we've done so many different things, I'm not frightened or intimidated or... Resistant uh, to? Yeah, about doing all different types of things. I mean, we could do 
any type of restaurant that we wanted to today. And I think I know how to go about and do it. And so we've, we've been so flexible all these years that it just continues. And again, uh, I am an optimistic person. And I salute the young people that have done something different and exciting. I want to learn from it. I'm going to leave it here. It's great to sit with the three of you. It's rare that I get an invitation where I'm really excited about something. But when Stephanie Davis reached out and said, you know, it's the 50th anniversary. Would you like to interview, you know, Rich and RJ and Jared and Molly, you know, I'm such an admirer of what you do, all of you. I do have friends who are in the industry in this town, and they've always spoken so highly of the family. I've never heard a bad word, and I was really looking forward to this, and thanks for spending this much time with me. Thank you. I I might say that you're in the right profession. I I think you're uh, a thoughtful interviewer. You ask good questions. That's why the answers are easy. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, you just made my week. It's only Monday. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll take that. (laughs) And that's our show for today. Again, my great thanks to Rich, RJ, and Jared Melman, and also to Vicki Freeman, Chandra Ram, Thank you. Absolutely. Always great to see you. Always great to see you. You made it easy for me today. As you know, I was kind of dragging myself to the microphone this morning. Uh, It's been another one of these weeks. Uh, Thank you for carrying me through my own intro. I think all I did was make coffee and chatter, but always here to do that. Thank you. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you are able to support us, the best way to do that is simply to follow us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast, or you can rate or review us at Apple Podcasts, which really does help people find the show. As always, our thanks to After School Special for our music. Please seek out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you actually back in two weeks. We're taking a vacation, and we'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. <laughs>